0: listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast UK, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the UK. I'm Rob Wall, I help connect businesses with technical talent, and today I'm your host. Hello and welcome to another installment of the Evolution Exchange Podcast. Today I'm joined by Nick Wells, Victoria Gilwar and Steve Bishop. Uh, to discuss building a cyber culture. So before we delve into the topic, I'd like to work around the room just to um, do some brief introductions. Uh, Victoria, do you want to start
1: us off? Sure, yes. Um, welcome, everyone, and thank you for allowing me to be here, Robert. I'm delighted to. I'm Vicky Gilwar. I'm a partner at Privacy Culture. I've got about 25 years' experience um, across different organisations, setting up awareness and education programmes in, in information security, risk management, risk and compliance, etc., etc., etc. And more latterly, uh, I've been working in privacy as well.
2: Thank you, Victoria. Steve, come to you. Yeah, Steve Bishop. So I currently work for Wipro as a client security lead, security partner. So uh, effectively, the, the bridge between sales and delivery. Uh, formerly a CISO with Atos um, in the financial services insurance um, organization. Uh, and prior to that, uh, 22 years in the military. So, all in all, 22 years of security experience in the services, but then since 2009, obviously in Civi Street in uh, in various industries, everything from uh, manufacturing Rolls-Royce through to nuclear and now uh, through to uh, consulting and indeed um, working with Wipro. Thank you Steve. And finally Nick. Yeah,
3: hi, thanks for having me. Uh, my name's uh, Nick Wells, I'm currently Director of Information security for Clear Channel International, a digital out-of-home uh, advertising uh, company. Uh, I've got around, well, not as many years in the Army as or in the military as Stephen. I only did 10. I didn't do my full 22, but... Uh, uh, left there and went straight into the it uh, security industry so around you know 25 30
0: years uh, experience in that area fantastic thank you uh, so now we're all introduced and um, we'll move on to the topic of focus um so you all sent me questions on building a cyber culture uh, as usual i work around the room and uh, read those questions to you guys and to give you each an opportunity to give it a bit of context behind the questions but also um you know give your take on the situation so um we'll start with steve um, so, Steve, your question was: um, What should the sphere of influence in building a cyber culture look like, and does it extend past your um, organisational boundaries? Do you want to give some context
2: behind that? Yeah, so I suppose as security practitioners uh, and privacy specialists—we always have our own motives in order of uh, influencing cultural change and, and the requirement demands of that cultural change. I think it's quite easy for us to articulate why we need that to be a focus for the business. But you know the challenges that we probably have faced in the past, and certainly I've challenged, uh, had faced in the past, is that making that motive resonate beyond the security or privacy uh, space into the wider business and context is rather challenging. So again, I just would like to see what other people's views and opinions are on how they've achieved that that cultural change uh, and maintained their own motives, as well as uh, broadening and 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 providing uh, benefits to others. Okay, thank you, Steve. And we'll come to you, Victoria.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a great question, isn't it? What does it actually look like (laughs) and when is it finished? I think that's the question I get asked so often. How do I know when it's actually done? Um, I think the answer to that is it's not. I mean, I think as as security professionals, we know that the programme is ongoing and that extends to awareness, education and training. If you're going to achieve behavioural change and indeed start to look at embedding a security culture, And I think it's often quite difficult, isn't it, for people to to understand what we mean by culture, what do we mean by behavior? And interestingly, we were talking earlier um, about both uh, Nick and, and Robert traveling and the culture, that we see um, in some European countries where they're taking their children out and they're having dinner late at night. And that's how it feels, isn't it? It's it's really inclusive. It feels really inclusive. It feels really open. And when I sort of talk about culture and and what does good look like in terms of a cultural change, that's what we really want to aim for, isn't it? Some inclusivity. We want people to feel confident in speaking up if they see something that isn't right. They want to know where to go. And that takes a lot of work a lot of connectivity, a lot of engagement across the business at all different levels. So there's a real action plan um, to begin with in terms of your stakeholder engagement. And and I don't just mean your senior leaders. Um, I mean, actually having conversations with people on the ground about how they think and feel about security. What do they even know and how do they like to be communicated with how do they like to be educated because we hear about um, oh we have to make it fun we have to make it monthly we have to do this we have to do that but actually People want information in the context of what they're actually doing, and they want timely and relevant information that really works for them. And we know that there are different functions that respond to information in different ways. Finance, IT, for example, want to consume things much more differently than your marketing community. So I'll just, I'll just take a pause there in case um, Steve or Nick have got any builds on that.
0: Yeah,
3: thanks. Um, I think uh, just, just going back to the question, uh, what should the, the sphere of influence in building be? I think one of my, my taglines in my security career has always been uh, security is everyone's responsibility. So that the sphere of influence, I guess, that you know everyone should be contributing uh, to, towards building a cyber secure culture. And, um, you know, I think the way that I look at it is, you know, again, the second part of the question, does it does that extend beyond your organisational boundary? When I try and, and build a, a campaign for security awareness, I try and make it relevant in both the personal life as well as the professional life is the, the more useful it is to them in their personal life, it becomes habit and habits, you know, form uh, and they transfer into the into the professional life as well. So. I think um, the, the sphere of influence is everyone should be involved in building it, and yes, it should extend beyond the uh, the organisational boundaries in its relevance.
2: Yeah, I, I don't dispute any of that, and I fully really support what both, uh, both are saying. You know, I, I think that certainly for me, the challenge is around that broader and ever increasing boundary, if you call it a boundary nowadays. But certainly, you know, all organisations seem to have dependencies on others, third parties, and that education goes beyond our boundaries. And that needs to be um, considered and also supported by others, certainly in the supply chain. Indeed, even our customer bases that have interactions and maybe um, interactions with our own systems themselves, and indeed our own staff and and resources as well. So it's it's, it's really kind of fascinating yet challenging. Again, my own um, view now is kind of morphing towards the fact that, you know, as a driver, a road user, I take a test. I don't then take another test and for a fair number of years. So should that education be unseen education? Are I built through experience, through signposting, through slight changes in legislation and, and how we consume that education in that way. And again, it's a question, it's not, it's not um you know not, not 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 really where we're going at the moment. But again, should education, should that change in cultural behavior be driven more from a an unseen rather than a forced view that currently security education programmes tend to drive.
3: Um, I, yeah, I think, think you're, you're on something there. I mean, when we look at the other training that everyone gets bombarded uh, monthly, weekly, yearly, you've got your compliance training, you've got your your financial training, you've got your health and safety training, which are all driven via legal requirements or, or legislation. Whereas, uh, I guess, Information security or cyber security. There's no, as you could say, GDPR, but there's no real legal requirement to to provide that kind of uh, training. You know, you you have to you have to do anti-bribery, uh, um, uh, anti-money laundering, if you work in the financial in- industry, uh, and you have to do obviously health and safety. Everyone has to do that that kind of awareness training, but there's no directive. Uh, uh, I guess a governmental legal level that, that we can we can pin ourselves to if you like.
1: Yeah I think um I definitely agree with the on-time training piece and that, that the, the quieter signposting is really helpful for people. Um, you, you, we need some kind of compliance check. Um, and I think you know companies are trying to make that compliance check as painless as possible to Nick's point around you know everything that people have to do monthly and annually. So trying to cut that down and making it succinct uh, making it a refresher with a test as far as possible so if you've done it last year and you pass with flying colors and you can answer quickly 10 questions then then make it do that um, and at least if your regulators are then coming in i um, mean in financial services some of them actually do require you to complete phishing simulation training as well then at least you can see that people have been um, trained as they understand training to be but actually changing influencing and making sure that behavior is as you would like it to be um, and embedding that security culture as as steve mentioned um, where we have some opportunities for signposting for example where you've got um, clients on email um, that advise you that you are you sure you're sending this email externally did you mean to do that did it was it supposed to be internal that's always helpful if you are doing good fishing simulation training i know there's a lot of controversy around whether it's good or not um, but some of the ones that i've seen um, actually give some signposting On specific emails about things that people should have spotted rather than telling them off and that's always helpful. Um, What's going to be helpful to people at the time um, relevant to current threats and relevant to the way that they're actually working particularly now that hybrid working is such a thing. Um, I know there's been a lot of concern from organisations around that increased risk how are they going to communicate to their employees Around um, what behaviours they need to put into practice, how are they going to manage security risks with people working away from home, um, and it's also about making sure that we're we're leveraging this kind of technology um, at the moment. I mean, this is a podcast, but initially we're running over Teams, so it's a little bit more interactive, and making sure that those interactions are actually happening regularly with managers, for example. Um, Apparently you're you're sort of three times as likely to to get the required behaviour from an employee if they're given regular feedback from managers. So I think in terms of just bringing it back to that sphere of influence as well, the manager can't be underestimated in terms of their influence around how an employee actually behaves. On a daily basis.
2: It's interesting that you, you, we mentioned um, compliance as a, as, a, as a mandate for education and training. Um, and I think all of us have probably been in industry whereby the regulator has driven that kind of educational behaviour. And we talked about the volume of education as well. You know, the numerous courses that we have to do on an annual basis, depending on which regulatory industry you, you sat with it. Um, and certainly when you sat across multiple clients, uh, you know irrespective of geography, but in terms of the interests themselves, then you're bound to be targeted for more training. Again, I'd question the motive of that training, because say at the moment, it seems that if we have a regulator who's hell-bent on on ticking the box that says, yes, I've, I've assured ourselves that this particular um, uh, supplier, vendor or, or client is is compliant, they're going through the educational journey, we're reporting on that, but actually go back to the teams that are undertaking that training and question the validity of that training question the, the the knowledge retention of that training because it does become you get muscle memory from it and you know you no longer do you retain that information you're just thinking this month i've got to do these number of courses tick 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 oh i messed up on that one i'll go back revisit it tick 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 you've done but actually have you retained that knowledge do you apply that learning
1: yeah i completely agree with you steve on that one and i think that's why you know having conversations with Um, people throughout the business at all levels in terms of what have they understood? What do they think the organisation is concerned about in terms of security? Is there a security culture? Do they know what to do in terms of security as part of their role? Um, So if if that, that happens regularly, either through surveys or ideally through close workshops, then you can make sure that you're changing up the training, how the training is delivered even, what's what's included in it, Um, And the other intervention opportunities that you have to train people, like we mentioned earlier, around the signposting as part of daily operations, that becomes so important. I think the compliance piece, until we find another way, and this is the challenge I always have, I'm sure you guys do as well, um, of actually confirming these people have been trained, which is very different to are they behaving in the way that we want them to behave, right? But have they been trained? Right now, it's, yes, I've got the training record to say that I've got 100% completion. Um, so I think that's, that's probably where we are there. What, do you have any thoughts on that, Nick?
3: Yeah, I think you're right around this, the whole tick box exercise of, of awareness training. And it's, it's something that I see uh, again and again in, in internal audits or external audits that we have. Um, you know, you must have a record of um, annual security awareness training. Uh, and as I, you know, as I say, I'm saying, you know, you can lead a horse to, wa- uh, to water, but you can't make it drink. You, you know, people will go on uh, and as Stephen's pointed out, tick, 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 yeah, passed. Uh, don't have to worry about that. Don't have to think about information security for another year. Whereas in fact, that that's what we want them to be thinking about security every day because it Security is everyone's responsibility. I'll get that in again. Um, <laughs> and this, the signpost uh, training or, or awareness is good, and it's something that we're looking at. Is you know, you mentions with, with like DLP protection on emails. You you're sending something that gets flagged as uh, critical, high confidential. Did you really mean to send this out externally? Um, and, and other things as well that, that, you know, if you're clicking on uh, malicious links, God forbid you don't, but uh, it actually, this is actually a malicious link um, and it sends you to a one-page refresher of what to do um, if we've got those tools in place, you know, uh, and that, that's a lot of integration but, uh, of different solutions that we're looking at, but I think they would be more effective and more useful than here's another PowerPoint presentation or computer-based training go through this read this answer these questions read this answer these questions uh, 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 in an, an effectiveness of of a you know building a culture uh, of, of cyber security
2: I think one of the points to we pick upon and, and and Victoria mentioned it earlier on was that the hybrid working model we're, we're enjoying if you argue enjoying it to the moment but um, you know I don't see that forever changing now I think that um, you know, we will see that blended model of, uh, of home and, and office life um, going on. Interesting enough, when we have a security culture in, in a regulated environment, in a, in, a, in a workplace, then you're able to, to sort of take that temperature check from your employees and your teams and so forth. You're able to signpost those security concerns and education pieces around you know, the organization themselves. How then do we do that? domestically? How then do we manage and educate the workforce when they're in their own domain, where where their potential barriers are somewhat more relaxed than they would be in an office environment?
3: So I I think um, it's it's a good question. And it's the question that's being asked all the time. Uh, And this then points back to, do we actually use technical controls to ensure and enforce that people are, you know, acting in a secure manner um, or are we still going to rely on people to to act in a, or be aware of what is secure um secure activity i think that's that's one thing that we've got to look at but then you have to balance the you know it's the old adage of balancing security against usability you don't want pop-ups every two seconds saying, you sure you want to do this are you sure you want to do that um uh, because then usability goes down and and, and compliance and security are stopping us doing our job and um, so we need to to balance that out as well so yeah uh, I think that's something that we've got to resolve
0: yeah yeah Steve are you comfortable that's covered off your uh your, your question now
2: absolutely and I welcome the insight from others and appreciate the uh the input so thank you stuff.
0: all right so okay Nick we'll move on to your question next you said uh how do you make security training fun and rewarding to improve engagement going to give some context behind that? Yeah, well, I think we've sort of covered that in the last question. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, making security
3: training relevant and and, and enjoyable and engaging. Because if we, if we carry on the way we are with the annual training of 10 questions or 20 or 30 questions or CBT-based training, people will switch on for the 30 minutes it requires them to switch on for. Uh, and they won't, you know, muscle memory, they won't remember it, they won't apply it in their in their work life, whereas if we use more of a one of the methods I've used is there's a restricted intelligence I'll give them a blood they do uh videos it's like a an office you know the office based type scenario, and they do uh, basically a story and each each episode is it's five ten minutes long maximum and it's on a security topic, whether it's password security or you know usb uh stick found in the car park uh but it's very humorous and the the feedback we get from that is a lot better than the the feedback of a, an awareness poster or a you know an awareness training program or package um and i think how can we improve and expand from just being you know showing videos once a month which they'll get a giggle out of and they'll may, maybe remember some nuggets of it but we want them to to remember more, and and, and uh, it, basically, security is a boring subject to people who aren't in security. To us, who are in it, it's just a great subject, and we love it, and it's interesting. <laughs> but to the average person, it's probably not. Um, so yeah, how can we keep
0: them engaged in, in their training? Thanks, Nick. Well, come to you, Stephen.
2: Yeah, as, as, again, it's fascinating because our perception of our uh, our topic of interest, you know, is somewhat. Skewed by others, you know. I agree; it's a fascinating subject, uh, but not everybody shares that fascination. I think the art with education is. I I take the point on the humour, and actually, really do enjoy the the comedic moments you see in some training, but probably for the wrong reasons. You know, the condescension that's also there in those training platforms. You know, I would avoid at all costs because it's it's painful. Uh, And I think the best education is the education you receive without actually realising you're being taught. you know and, and how we do that is probably you know that that eternal question how do we deliver that that learning uh, program that requirement of education without making without doing it to people doing it with them making it painless but making it enjoyable but also making it as though they're learning something we're actually realizing they're learning and they're able to share that
1: yeah some great points there. Um, So absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, people need to know what it is that you want them to do in context of their role. Um, Individuals have got different roles within an organisation, they've got different priorities, different focus, their subcultures within their function will be different, the line management style will be different, all their interactions are going to be different. Um, And the way that they want to consume information is also different. It takes, I think, six different times and six different ways to actually land a particular message. So that thought needs process needs to happen before you start to consider what your program of activity needs to be. So what are the risks that you need to cover? Who are the people in your organization that are interacting with confidential data, including you know, personal sensitive personal data on a regular basis? Who needs more training than other people? Who needs more focus? So there are going to be those considerations first. There's a lot of planning that needs to happen before you even start putting pen to paper in terms of what people need to be educated about and how they want to receive it. Then, as I mentioned earlier, you need to ask them. You need to have some interactions with your functions, with your leaders, with people on the ground in different roles around what it is they do and how they like to consume information then you can build a program of awareness education and training because they are three separate things that actually speaks to what they want And unfortunately, I don't think at the moment we can get away without the compliance check. So the annual training probably does need to happen, but it doesn't need to be awful. It can be good, it can be relevant to the company, it can be punchy, it can be short, and it can literally just be that compliance check. And you can be honest with your workforce about the fact that they need to do that, but actually you're gonna give them a good source of education throughout the year. And most importantly, Somewhere to come back to to find out more information. I think a lot of the issues come about where people have the training and then they remember it for a week or so. As Nick was saying, it just sort of falls away, doesn't it? um And they don't know where to go. It's like, oh, I think this looks like an incident. This looks—I've sent my data to the wrong person. My machine's behaving in a strange way. I've received a strange email. I took the cybersecurity training. I can't remember the email address. I can't remember if I need to use the phishing button. What do I need to do? So it's where do they go for more information and that quietly advertising that regularly. So if you are publishing articles about about threats that are relevant to your business, that makes sense for people on your Internet, underline it with remember, if you see anything strange, report it to the team in this way. And over time, people will pick it up. I mean, In the past, I think we've seen campaigns of awareness, education and training that have not been based on, on the context of the business or the risks that the security team are facing or the plans that they have to implement great bits of technology. All of that stuff needs to go in the mix so that everything people are getting is in the context of what the business, the security team Are doing at the time and the external threats that are coming in then things start to make sense to them. Um, I've been speaking for a while so the the last thing (laughs) I'm going to say on the topic is that I'm especially around the hybrid working I really advocate finding your security ambassadors and I know that it's really hard to set up an ambassador program because I've worked with, with people to do it several times. But if you start by having these conversations with people at the beginning of the creation of your awareness, education and training programme around what they know and what they want, you start to surface the people who are interested in the subject. Once you build those relationships and those conversations, they will quickly become your ambassadors. So you'll have people within functions that will start to become the eyes and ears that you need on the ground. This is not a small task. It's going to take a long time, um, but yeah, it's it's an approach that I've seen work time and again. Thanks for sharing.
2: I think the technology you have got available to us, you know, will lend itself to um, you know the use of um, Teams as we're doing now. We've got, we've got the opportunity for you know uh, communication boards, you know, a daily ticker of news, you know, and that kind of thing. I mean, there's I tried. Or, or piloted a little exercise where I had a little form of my own in my previous organisation where I said, CISO says, you know, this is what was relevant to me. This is what was keeping me awake at night. These are the reasons why they are keeping me awake at night. This is what we're trying to do about that. And then opening the doors because you know back in the day when we started out in security, our doors were always closed, the curtains were always drawn. You know, you'd knock on the door, customer would knock, our internal customers would knock on the door, and you would think, oh, what's coming now? Have I haven't got time for this? Whereas nowadays, you know, our doors are open, the windows are open, the curtains are open. We want engagement. It's not just us, as Nick says, you know, as we've all agreed, it's everybody. We need to involve everybody. So that, that pilot's kind of worked, but it kind of didn't work. It created a lot more volume of work than I anticipated. I thought it'd be an opportunity uh, to, to engage. And indeed, that, that ambassador point you talk about, Victoria, you know, had I had that thought of the ambassador program, maybe I could have offset some of that risk in terms of increased workload. By engaging with that population and getting them to do some of that piece as well, and I think that's a good takeaway for me. Is that if I'm running the opportunity again, that's certainly a piece that I'll consider. I
1: love to see yeah. those said an idea as well. I really do. I think that's great.
3: Anything final to add? I think yeah, I think um, uh, some very good points and, and some good takeaways there uh, as well. Um, but you, what other tools can we use? I mean, there, there was this phase of gamification uh, or rewarding people to. You know, Cyber Security Month in November, as as we know, is in November. And you know, one of my previous roles, we had you know a weekly competition, a you know, crack the crack the cryptop- 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 cryptography um, competition. You know, a picture of a desk. What's wrong with this desk? And we'd give away prizes, uh, you know, randomly to to people who entered that. And that did drive up a lot of uh, of engagement. For that month for the obvious reason people want shiny things at the end of it um is that is that still a valid way of getting getting people engaged in that uh, and does it work long term or is it just again november halfway through december when everyone's concentrating on christmas party, everyone's forgot Forgot
2: it. I think that's a really good point. You know, that the reward system. I think rewarding people is important, but I think we try and reward people at the wrong time, like we talk about November being that month of security awareness. You know, for, for me it's about you know the induction process, having that physical face at the induction process, giving those people the identity of who do I come to, who knows about the subject matter, who's how and who do I engage. But having that opportunity to be right up front and center when it comes to the induction i think it's really integral to any kind of cultural uh, behavioral change and indeed that ongoing visibility of the security and the data privacy teams helps then you know answer the the the, the, the your colleagues' question of who do I go to? Who do I see? Give a face to those those those, those operations.
1: Definitely, I agree with both of those points. Um, Nick, to, to your original point around um, cybersecurity awareness month, I think it's a great opportunity to drive awareness and for the security team to come together and have fun, um, because you tend to go to the people that uh, can create great um, hacking demos and they love it so all the faces that are usually behind the desk or sitting at home come together so I definitely advocate carrying on those events um, in terms of a piece of engagement but the inductions, I totally agree it's the best time to get an employee hooked in they've got no other pressures from the organisation they're not sucked into a project or politics or anything so perfect time to let them know where to go, who to contact, if they've got any queries or questions, I think, around security. In terms of other tools to use, Nick, I think I kind of go back to having those conversations with people within the business to start with before you start your programme. How do they like to receive information? So it might be that that there are things in the organisation that are working really well that you've seen, so or internal communications Um, communicating with you on a channel that's working particularly well. For example, um, I've seen some really great uh, C-level podcasts that are going out and and lower-level podcasts in organisations as well, Um, sort of virtual coffees that people are having, that people are loving. You mentioned your restricted intelligence, sort of building that into, into a campaign and then measuring success in conjunction with internal comms. Those things really work. But your audience will tell you if you go if you go out and get some very and very lightweight engagement with people in different functions and actually ask them, hey, you know, if if I'm going to give you a message about security, how do you want to receive it? Do you want me to to send you um, a two minute message? video do you prefer to read an article over coffee in the morning i'm one of those people i get up you know five in the morning and i and i read articles over coffee i really enjoy consuming information that way by the time it gets to the evening though i'm I'm definitely up for watching the short videos (laughs) to get my information so i think it really does depend on the audience and it's what are your messages what do you want to tell people and then find out how they like to receive it and if you're getting that engagement, again, going back to, you know, you've got your ambassadors. So ask those people to then promote your messages for you as well and continually gather feedback from them. Did it work? Yeah, we've tried it. You asked us to do it in a two minute video. Did it work? We, we sent out an intranet article. Did that work? Um, Everyone tries to avoid the all-hands email, um, but um, town halls, you know, are are leaders already planning their town halls? Normally they are. are. Um, Is there a big change that's happening in the organization where you can hook in a security message? Anything that's already happening that you can leverage is always a good one as well. Um, So, yeah, just a few thoughts there.
0: that covered your point, Nick. To do any anything further to add? No,
3: no. There's some great, uh, great food for thought there
0: to, to take away. Thank you, good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, well, uh, Victoria, we'll come over to your question now, which was, uh, what does a good cybersecurity culture look like? Give some context.
1: Yeah, I think you know, and we've, we've we've discussed a lot of it, haven't we, here today already? But I think I go back to um, it, it's almost what it feels like as much as what it looks like. Steve made a point earlier about um, after sending out the CISO says um, opportunity, he was bombarded with requests and, and engagement. And of course you don't want to be overwhelmed, but you do want to have that interaction with people. So it, individuals on an individual basis you want them to feel confident about speaking up if something goes wrong i think that's my number one for a good cybersecurity culture no one is afraid of the consequences of speaking up quickly they're aware that there might be longer term consequences for the organization but they will do it quickly people know where to go if if they need something from information security you're getting regular interactions um, someone says to me well does it mean that my dashboard is all green and you know I've got no incidents nothing's happening I said would well, be quite worried probably if that was the case <laughs> because maybe people don't know where to go to to report incidents so you, you should still expect incidents to be coming through that that isn't going to stop but they're they're going to feel supported they're going to feel included people will be talking to you you will be getting that engagement although it it can be overwhelming back to what steve said Um, if no one in the business is speaking to the information security team there is a problem because people either don't know that the subject's important or they're afraid to speak up. So there's going to be a lot of engagement, a lot of interaction, um, and you're going to notice good behaviours in terms of people talking to you about and surfacing particular risks. There'll be a lot of peer discussion. People will be turning to each other and asking does this look strange to you? And you will notice that. Um, but of course, another point I made earlier, you've got to measure it. You're going to have to proactively, continually speak to people within the organisation to find out how they think and how they feel and if that is actually translating into the behaviours. Um, and, and Nick, you know the, the tools that are in use to, to measure and monitor what's happening will correlate, won't they, with, with the behaviors that you're surfacing from those conversations as well.
2: Thanks, sir. Welcome to you, Stephen. Yeah, I mean it's a fantastic question, isn't it? I think we're all challenged with the same kind of asking ourselves ourselves the same question. How how do we know we're doing the right things? How do we know it's it's working well? And again, it's the points you make, it's about the feedback. It's about the safe environment for our employees and, and colleagues to be able to speak freely, and, and then having face-to-face interactions with those security practitioners themselves, and validating their understanding, and validating their their own perceptions. I think one of the things that you know, we, I was certainly conscious of when I when I started the CISO SAIS piece was, I didn't plan for the success. I saw it as a means to to um, to start the journey, but I hadn't you know envisaged the pace of that journey. And I suppose, really, to build a successful culture and indeed that programme needs to to be planned and baked into a plan that is supported, bought into, not just by you and the team that's delivering it, but by the wider team, the wider colleagues and organisations themselves. So that safe environment allows people to speak freely without fear. Uh, And indeed, you know, the old adage of no noise is good noise. Well, actually, that's to the contrary, as you say, it's not the right thing we want to hear we need to hear, we need to hear the hum of the organisation, the business and its needs and validate their needs, as you say, on a continuous basis to make sure that we're hitting the mark. And when we're not hitting the mark, be open and honest to say we haven't got all the answers, help us. And that, I suppose for me is is, is is how we'd measure that what good culture should look like.
3: Thanks, Tim. I, I just want to, yeah, I, I agree on all the points and one but I think it's probably the most important is um, that people should not be afraid to report that they've potentially done something wrong. You know, we should, there should be no blame culture anywhere near this uh, this area of because to, to build a culture, of people need to be able to you know, have a safe space, if you like, to uh, to be able to say, I think I've messed up, or I think there's an instance, or I've seen something without without uh, you know the the old school high and mighty CISO coming down on them like a ton of brick, uh, which, uh, you know, is something that thankfully we sort of moved away from uh, these days. Uh, And I think as uh, Stephen mentioned, having a very open and approachable security team, you know, not having the doors closed and the the screens covered with, you know, the dashboards covered like some kind of uh, CIA operations centre. Which we're we're really not. Uh, I think uh, having a much more open um, and approachable face to security is really key to to having that good culture.
1: that, Victoria? No, I think that was that was spot on as well.
2: Yeah, I think we need to get away from that 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 um, let's like say that that blame culture, uh, whether it's implied or other. Wise. And I think that's really kind of key. I mean, we probably all had you know, our first bad boss experience, you know, and that, that sticks with you. And, and, and you try to not emulate uh, those behaviours as you, as you grow within this particular industry. And I certainly have, have learned from my previous leadership, uh, both good and bad, and hopefully taken forward the, the good elements, but being conscious of the bad elements so that I can always measure myself and indeed the team so that we don't emulate that kind of behaviour, that we do absolutely provide an opportunity for our colleagues uh, friends in organisations as well as the organisations themselves and third parties and, and, and customers where we can speak freely and I think that's, that's probably for, for me the most important element of that is to be seen to be human. Yeah
1: definitely.
3: Just a... Yeah I think uh, uh, another good indicator of having a good cybersecurity culture is that uh, you know security is not left to the last moment when you know the, the business has implemented a new solution or a new whiz-bang toy and then they think, oh, we better get security in right at the end. And then it's like security says, no. You know, it's if you're if you're being involved from the uh, inception of of a project or a big program or project or transformation program, uh, and and that's when you know that you know you've got a good security culture within within your teams.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really great point, Nick, isn't it? Building security in early, and that the knowledge that building security in early will actually be an opportunity rather than feeling like a blocker at the end, definitely.
2: One other area that I, I considered, and indeed uh, we we enjoyed, was secondment, bringing people into the security team, certainly the graduate programs, you know, the, the sort of the, the younger generation, if you will, and, and across the diversity of the organization as well. So it doesn't matter if you're in finance or, or whatever element of business you're in, come and experience some time, even if it's a couple of days or a day, you know, come and see us come and spend some time with us come and see what our lives are like and indeed for us to see what their lives are like as well so when we talked about tooling on earlier on in the conversation nick you know you know what tools are available to us well let's look at the organization what tools do they use what do they need you know and when it comes to, the, to the, the the design principles security architectural design principles they may make sense to us but they may not make sense to the business and it's that conversation that we need to have
3: i think that's a fantastic idea uh, yeah uh, come and come here. Yeah, come and live a day, of the life in our shoes, uh, and exactly vice versa. Going out and understanding the impact of the tools and the processes and the controls we we put in place or we think should be in place. What is that actually having? Uh, what impact is that actually having on their way of working? Is it you know? Is it is it again the balance between usability and security? We need to
0: ensure that we understand. Uh, that impact is absolutely absolutely Fantastic. okay and uh i think that's covered off the uh the questions we've had from uh, from the panel so far um so yeah we we shall leave it there this has been the evolution exchange podcast i'll take this opportunity to thank victoria steve and nick for providing their insights on the topic uh thank you for listening if you would like to get involved in up and coming podcasts please reach out to me on linkedin or on my emails robert.wall evolutionjobs.co.uk and we will see you next time